Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glitzer. And I'm Will Oremus. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We are recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, May 8th. On today's show, we'll talk about the hedge fund that's gutting the newsrooms of local newspapers across the country and racking up enormous profits at the same time. We'll bring you the futuristic news out of Google's annual developer conference, including an AI that can hold a conversation and book you a dinner reservation. Then we'll be joined by Professor Raj Rajkumar, a self-driving car expert who serves as co-director of Carnegie Mellon's Autonomous Driving Research Lab. He'll talk not just about the future of self-driving cars, but the present, how today's technology stacks up to human drivers in terms of safety, and what's behind the recent spate of crashes. And we'll close with Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best things we've seen online this week. All right, April, how are you doing this week? And, And actually, where are you this week? Oh, I'm just a little down south, so a bit closer to you. I'm in Los Angeles, um, recording from the historic home of A. Quincy Jones. <laughs> Not the one who created Thriller, but uh, but the architect. And uh, and so that's why it might sound a little funky, but uh, but we're still doing the podcast. And, and you're in Santa Barbara? Yes, I am here as usual. And before we start, I want to thank the listeners who have written in. Uh, We had a great voice memo from a listener last week. So please continue to send us uh, messages, send us a voice memo. You can write us at ifthen at slate.com. We would love to keep reading your questions on the air now and then, and, uh, and also just always appreciate the feedback. All right, so now we want to talk about a new villain in the news business. It's called Alden Global Capital. It's a hedge fund that owns more than 50 newspapers around the country. It's become increasingly controversial in recent weeks, not only for its cost-cutting practices. I mean, it's just decimating newsrooms, laying off journalists left and right in cities like San Jose, Denver. But recently, it was reported that the hedge fund is raking in huge profit margins, even as it lays off journalists saying that the business isn't sustainable. April, what is Alden Global Capital's strategy here, and and what are the effects on local journalism in, in these cities? And, you know, to be clear, I wouldn't call them a new villain. I feel like they've been villainous for some time. And, and, and you used to work at the, the Mercury when it was owned by Alden, right? 
Yeah, so it was owned by uh, Media News, which was a, a conglomerate out of Denver owned by D- Dean Singleton. And when Media News went bankrupt, that's when uh, Alden Global Capital swooped in and, and bought up Media News and all its constituent papers. Right. But they have been particularly villainous lately. Um, the hedge fund uh, has been trying to increase its profits and has been successful in that, apparently. And one way of doing that has been by tightening the belt in newsrooms across the country. The Denver Post is going to cut another 30 reporters by July. They've already had uh, numerous layoffs throughout the year. The uh, Mercury News in San Jose, which is the newspaper that is the hometown paper of Silicon Valley, uh, has had uh, massive layoffs throughout the year uh, as well. Uh, just to give some perspective about kind of the amount of uh, layoffs that have happened at these papers, you know, the the Denver newsroom used to be about 250 uh, reporters and, and editors and what have you. Now there's a f- less than 100 there today. And, you know, this isn't just uh, papers that are owned by um, Alden where we're seeing this. We're also seeing like the, the Sacramento Bee, which is the, the capital of California. Uh, that, that newspaper uh, has had massive layoffs. So this is something that's happening across the industry. But, uh, but, but this particular uh, hedge fund that owns over 50 papers across the country uh, and the biggest ones being uh, in St. Paul, in Denver, uh, and in San Jose uh, have just seen brutal layoffs. And, and those reporters that actually went today to New York to protest and, uh, and hold a, a picket in front of, uh, in front of Alden Global Capital's uh, headquarters. And, uh, and, and the argument they're saying is that, you know, our newspaper should be owned by people who care about the news. Uh, and, you know, we can get a bit more into the economics of, of, of this, but... Yeah, and, and obviously layoffs in the newspaper industry are not new. I mean, I remember when I started at the at the, the Mercury News company back in 2004, 2005, already the layoffs were starting to hit. And every year, I would just, you know, in the newsroom, we would gather around around the holidays to see how many people were getting laid off and how much our benefits were getting cut. So this definitely is not a new phenomenon. And, and it's I think it's, you know, the rise of the Internet, the effects of that on the newspaper industry have been pretty clearly documented over the years. But this is just a particularly striking case where you have a company that's actually making piles of money. Um, yeah, 17 percent uh, profit margin this year they've reported that we know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so I guess a question here is like can you blame Alden Global Capital for doing this or are they just operating within a system I mean they're, they're sort of the vultures that come and, and scavenge I guess on the on the carcass of of the local news industry but isn't it sort of dying anyway anyway I wouldn't put the word necessarily in front of any of this uh, and and yes you can blame uh, Alden for doing this and and the the company under them digital first media that's kind of the operating company of these papers um, I think we absolutely should blame them for doing this because they are in fact doing it so uh, I don't think there's a question of, of uh, where there's blame here. Uh, it's a matter of what your values are. And if you are simply motivated by profiting, then sure, uh, you will do whatever you can to make as much profit as possible. But if your motivation is to run a company that's serving the information needs of your customers and, and the public, then you're going to to, to uh, not put uh, making your profit margins as tremendous as possible first and instead make sure that the business is operating in a healthy way and 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 serving the people who who actually who buy the paper. Yeah, and I think that's been a, the tension in the news business for a long time. I mean, in the pre-internet era, 
um, after you had consolidation and you only had one or two major newspapers in every city, a lot of these were family-owned and they were immensely profitable. I mean, I remember there were there were days uh, in the 1990s of 20, 25%, 30% profit margins. But the thing was, all that profitability allowed these family-run newspapers to subsidize stuff like investigative reporting and, you know, and, and big newsrooms that did serious uh, in-depth feature stories. They kind of had that cushion. And then as that has gone away in the internet era, now, uh, you know, just to make ends meet, you have to keep cutting left and right. And so these guys are just I don't cutting. know if it's to make ends meet. I think it's to make more money. <laughs> right, right. Okay. But yeah. even if you were just trying to make ends meet, you would have to be cutting. They're cutting harder and faster in order to actually turn a profit while they downsize. And to give perspective on this, the San Jose Mercury News a decade ago had 400 journalists. Now the area, now the, there's only 41 journalists. There's no education reporter. There is no health reporter, right? And again, this is the, the hometown paper of, you know, of, of Google, of Facebook, of the most powerful companies in the world. And there is not a local paper there covering uh, how those companies, not only what they're doing, but also how they're affecting the communities that they, that they live within. And a lot of the journalists who, uh, who are forced out of the paper then, you know, go, go work in, in PR for, for tech companies. It's not a healthy relationship right now. And, and without, without reporters there, you know, who knows what kind of corruption has already been happening and, and will continue to happen on scene. Right. And, and I think that's why it's a tech story is because most of the money, most of that, that advertising money that used to go to local newspapers has been sucked up by the Googles and the Facebooks. I mean, that's, they're eating the pie that used to be the, lo- the journalism pie, and Google and Facebook are not doing journalism or even really subsidizing journalism. And in fact, they've sort of torn down the walls that those publications used to use to make subscription money. About 10 years ago, uh, these newsrooms were seeing uh, cutbacks, too, and and layoffs. And a lot of that had to do with media consolidation, where, you know, a national newspaper owner would buy more and more papers and then try to spread the reporting talent across those papers and share stories and just generally consolidate newsrooms and and, and therefore lay off reporters. Now we're seeing newsrooms uh, having a a difficult time actually competing and, and remaining viable uh, within the economic model that has been imposed on them by these internet companies. And these internet companies, meaning like Google and Facebook, that, that are used to distribute news now, uh, have this free model where people get to access content for free uh, as long as they hand over their data. Well, you know, in, in the mix of that, uh, these, these newspapers aren't making any money, and then Google and Facebook are running ads against the sharing of these, of these news stories, and they've had to put up paywalls, you know, or compete with uh, digital first publications that are, you know, used to running ads and have a different kind of business. So it's, it's just it's, it's just been a, a very complicated transition for local newspapers in particular, not national, you know, news operations like Slate that are online, but these local operations to, to, to remain viable uh, in the kind of Internet economy. Right, and there is a certain irony in that some of the heaviest cuts are coming at the San Jose Mercury News, which is the hometown paper of Silicon Valley. That's right, and uh, and I just want to put a call out if there are any reporters or, or former reporters or editors who were at any papers that were uh, owned by Alden, uh, please email me, april.glazer at slate.com. I want to hear about your experience. Uh, but, you know, moving back to the Internet, uh, Will, Google had a big conference today where they had no shortage of announcements. Google I.O., their big developer conference on the hill, heels of Facebook's big developer conference. 
Uh, it seems like they didn't talk about the bad year they've had, but they talked about all kinds of other stuff. What was the biggest thing that came out today? Well, one of the big headlines out of Google I.O. this week are all the changes coming to the next version of Android, their mobile operating system. This is going to be Android P. And Google talked about focusing on something it called digital well-being. One of the features will be a usage dashboard that tries to give you an easy way to see how much time you're spending on your phone and on various apps. Maybe you can see what you're addicted to and try to combat it somehow. Um, there's also, relatedly, there's a new feature in YouTube where it's going to start telling you if you've been watching for a long time. And, and if you turn this on, you can get a reminder that says, hey, you've been watching YouTube for the past hour. Do you want to take a break and do something else? So that's, you know, it's one of those sort of maybe perfunctory nods in the direction of companies starting to take responsibility for our addiction to their devices. But actually, what I thought was the real showstopper was a demo. It was a demo of Google's AI assistant. And I guess rather than describe it, let's just let's play a clip. Uh, and, and keep in mind here that one of these two voices is actually Google's artificial assistant. How can I help you? Hi, I'm calling to book a women's haircut for a client. Um, I'm looking for something on May 3rd. Sure, give me one second. Mm-hmm. Sure, what time are you looking for around? At 12 p.m. We do not have a 12 p.m. available. The closest we have to that is a 1.15. Do you have anything between 10 a.m. and uh, 12 p.m.? Depending on what service she would like, what service is she looking for? Just a woman's haircut for now. Okay, we have a 10 o'clock. 10 a.m. is fine. Okay, what's her first name? The first name is Lisa. Okay, perfect. So I will see Lisa at 10 o'clock on May 3rd. Okay, great. Thanks. Great. Have a great day. Bye. All right, and Google swears that's a real phone call between its assistant and uh, the receptionist at a, at a hairdresser. Yeah, I'm sure that, that they you know have an AI that can talk to people and deceive people. Um, that's probably a whole other can of worms, right? Like, who knows what's next with that? But uh, certainly impressive. No doubt they practiced that hundreds of times. I do wonder, you know, when you actually, in a few months, when this actually becomes available, if I ask my Google Home, make me a dinner reservation, whether it will actually carry that out or not remains to be seen. It's, it's you know, the, the hard thing about AI is that every situation, every conversation is different. There's no way you can program a computer to anticipate every possible way that somebody could respond when you say, you know, can I get a table for two at 8 p.m.? And do, do you think that people are going to eventually actually just be talking to their computers? I, I don't see that now. You know, I certainly, like, I'm, I'm walking into a mall or whatever. I hear people on the phone, but I don't. I hear them talking to other people, right? I don't hear them. I hear them talking to other people. I don't hear them making commands to their phone to to do stuff for them, right? But is that going to change? You think? That's a, that's really a good question. I mean, I do think there's an extent to which this has been pushed by the tech companies more than it's been demanded by consumers. The ability to talk to your phone. I'm not asking for it. <laughs> right. But that said, I mean, I I have had uh, an Amazon Echo in my kitchen. Right. I've had a Google Home in my kitchen. I find it like close to indispensable these days, um, despite my privacy concerns, which we've talked about on the show. Um, it really, in a lot of settings, I think in the car also, I think, you know, maybe not when you're walking down the street and on your phone, but 
uh, when you're in your living room, you want to change the music or change the temperature. When you're in the car and you want to say, uh, one of the examples they gave today was, send Nick my, my updated ETA. And then Google Maps in the car will hear you talking and then send a text message to your friend Nick saying that, oh, based on traffic, it looks like Will will be there in 28 minutes. Right. And it's hard to predict, like, what we're going to get addicted to with technology or what's going to, you know, I've certainly become very, very addicted to the amount of minutes that it says it's going to take me on Google Maps to get somewhere. And, you know, if you told me that I was that I was going to develop a new neuroses because of the, you know, Google Maps minute counter uh, five years ago, I would have been like, nah, come on. Like, I'm fine. I don't need that. Um, and so it's really hard to, to know what's going to happen. But uh but they sure they certainly have been saying it's going to happen for a while, and I haven't caught on. Um, and uh, and we'll just you know keep keep watching this space and see if eventually people start you know talking to Google as their electronic butler, as Google would like. Yeah, and, they, and I think they are starting to recognize some of the shortcomings of a pure voice command system, and that's why the newest crop of devices that we're seeing that build on the Amazon Echo and the Google Home actually have displays in them. They actually have a screen. That's creepy for new reasons, because it can some, some of them can take pictures or they can do video conferencing. You would not want to get hacked by a, a smart assistant with a screen in your living room. But, uh, but yeah, so they're starting to recognize that in some situations, you would rather be able to, to choose from five options on the screen rather than having to do everything by voice. Uh, one of the one of my pet peeves with the Google Home is I'll ask it to play a song like, you know, play No Woman No Cry and then it gives me some off-brand version that's not by Bob Marley that's like some terrible cover and I have to argue with the thing to get it to play the <laughs> the normal live uh, version from London. Uh, it would be nice to do that on a screen and, and soon you'll be able to. All right, well, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we will have our interview with Professor Raj Rajkumar. is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our guest today is Professor Raj Rajkumar. He's a professor in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at Carnegie Mellon University, where he also has a courtesy appointment in the Robotics Institute. He is the director or co-director of several programs and initiatives involving self-driving vehicles, including the General Motors Carnegie Mellon Connected and Autonomous Driving Collaborative Research Lab. There are lots of people out there these days thinking and opining about self-driving cars. Professor Rajkumar actually has years of experience building them, dating back, I believe, to the 2007 DARPA Grand Challenge. Professor Rajkumar, welcome to If Then. It's a pleasure to talk to you, Will. All right. So now it's 2018, and self-driving cars have come a long, long way. 
I don't know if you imagined back in 2007 that we would have self-driving taxis on public roads in 2018, uh, but there have been a lot of questions lately about whether things are moving too fast. Uh, we've seen the horrific crash in Arizona where a self-driving Uber ran over a pedestrian and killed her. Um, there was a Tesla on autopilot in Mountain View lately uh, involved in a fatal accident. Are these cars safe today? Are they safer than human drivers today? Uh, so are vehicles uh, safe, uh, as safe as humans? Uh, the answer, uh, unfortunately, is no. Uh, if you look at the uh, statistics in the U.S. alone, uh, about 40,000 fatalities happen uh, every year from uh, uh, crashes. And turns out that if you do the uh, mileage uh, uh, statistics, one fatality happens every 80 million miles or so, age zero. So uh, uh, humans, we drive for about 80 million miles before one of us dies, right? which is unfortunate, of course, but that's a tremendously high bar for automated vehicles to actually meet. Uh, nobody out there, including uh, Waymo slash uh, Google, they have tested vehicles on the roads for 80 million miles. So we do not, have, we have not accumulated maybe even uh, on a combined basis across all companies and universities out there, we have not accumulated 80 million miles. And we have already had uh, uh, a few fatalities that we know of. And so, Professor Rajkumar, I was on an earnings call, a Tesla earnings call, uh, where their CEO, Elon Musk, was going on a rant about uh, how irresponsible journalists report sensationally on the fatal crashes involving Tesla's autopilot software. I should probably clarify here, this is not; these are not fully self-driving vehicles. This is software that takes over and does the work when you're on the freeway, and then you have to stay behind the wheel and stay alert. He said that the, this is already saving lives. He, cl- he likes to claim that it's 40% safer than human drivers. Uh, and he said, in fact, when the media reports on these crashes, they may be putting people's lives at risk by painting the software as unsafe so that people then don't use it. Do you buy his claim that, it, that, that the software is actually already safer than humans and that uh, the media has been irresponsible in, in portraying it as potentially dangerous? Yeah, what we certainly know today is that uh, so-called uh, ADAS systems, uh, advanced driver assist systems like automated uh, braking are extremely helpful in uh, eliminating or mitigating the extent of crashes. Uh, uh, lots of car makers actually uh, supply uh, lane keeping systems, uh, uh, self-parking systems, uh, adaptive cruise control systems. I think uh, those systems have clearly, I think, uh, have the ability to uh, reduce the intensity of crashes. That, I think, uh, is just a given. Uh, I think when we make this uh, step, uh, the next step to basically auto- automation, uh, I do not think we actually have enough evidence to basically uh, uh, draw conclusions the way uh, Mr. Musk is doing. You were recently quoted at some length in a a Verge article that I found fascinating. It was about the different approaches to automation that we see from two of the major players. We have Waymo, which is Google's self-driving arm, uh, and they are doing a lot of simulations in the lab where they, they simulate miles. They don't actually have that many cars out on the road, but when they do, those cars are fully self-driving. Um, and then Tesla, in contrast, has autopilot installed on tens of thousands, I guess hundreds of thousands of vehicles now around the world. And uh, they are, you know, it's tracking what drivers are doing. It's collecting data all the time. But uh, you pointed out that there's there are some drawbacks to that approach. What are the, what's the pros and cons of these two different approaches? When you do simulations, you can pretty much uh, simulate a wide range of uh, road conditions, 
lighting conditions, weather conditions, traffic conditions. And then uh, you can uh, instantiate an avatar of your uh, self-driving vehicle into that uh, simulation environment and see how, how it reacts uh, to the happenings around the vehicle. Uh, so you can pretty much inject uh, willy-nilly whatever scenario that you want. Heavy snow, heavy rain, uh, uh, daytime, nighttime, uh, twilight hours, uh, pretty much any combination that you want. And you can, for example, uh, inject uh, pedestrians uh, who actually start uh, uh, crossing the street right in front of the autonomous vehicle and so on, things that you will never ever be able to test in practice, you can test in the land of simulation. So that uh, gives simulation enormous degree of power and flexibility, if you will, right? Um, so this is the way I look at it. If uh, uh, a vehicle uh, does well in uh, simulation, right, that actually gives you a good degree of confidence. So, so to me, in, uh, to a very real extent, uh, simulation is almost a necessary component, if you will. Unfortunately, it turns out that uh, simulation, though it is necessary, may not be sufficient because no matter how good your simulation software is, it really does not reflect uh, the real-world conditions that a vehicle encounters, if you will, uh, both in terms of the environment, but more in terms of the dynamics of how, for example, uh, the tire is worn out, the road basically has... Uh, a pothole and how the, how the interaction between the two actually uh, manifests itself. So I do believe that uh, you need to simulate. You also need to test in the real world. Simulation is necessary, but not sufficient. But uh, testing the real world, you cannot test it under all possible conditions. So when you combine the two, you, you get the best of both worlds. All right. I have a question for you about the mechanics of safety in self-driving cars. So in the Uber crash where a pedestrian was killed in Arizona, there was recently a report in the information that said the vision systems in the self-driving car actually detected the woman in the road, but the software interpreted it as potentially just a piece of debris or just uh, you know some kind of mirage, uh, and the car did not slam on the brakes. So that suggests that uh, one thing we still haven't figured out yet is how to interpret all the data that are that's coming in from the sensors in these vehicles is that one of the biggest obstacles right now to making these these types of cars safer so so well uh, what the vehicle is trying to do is uh, react to what is happening around the vehicle while uh, adhering to the rules of the road uh, in this case uh, uh, vehicles have to uh, eliminate what are called uh, false positives and false negatives a false positive is when there is an obstacle out there but uh, the vehicle thinks that there's no obstacle out there. That would be a false positive. And the false negative is when there's no obstacle and the vehicle thinks that there is an obstacle, it'll likely end up uh, slamming on the brakes. Given the current status of uh, AI, uh, object recognition and classification systems, uh, it is very difficult to basically have zero false positives and zero false negatives. When you actually have uh, false negatives, the vehicle uh, slams on the brakes, uh, slows down, and makes it very uncomfortable for the passengers. And meanwhile, if there is a false positive, you end up uh, having a situation like what Uber encountered in uh, Arizona, right? You basically end up, I guess, which ended up killing a pedestrian. So we do not want either case. And so uh, filtering these things out, I guess it's a, it's a touchy subject, if you will. Uh, I think in Uber's case, uh, the fact that they actually have multiple sensors, radars, lidars, cameras, at least two of those uh, sensor types, if not all the three, would have detected that there is an obstacle. Right? 
they would have detected there is an obstacle. And uh, to me, I have a hard time imagining why the obstacle would be filtered away as a false positive. I can imagine the systems getting confused saying that classifying that obstacle as a pedestrian, that actually can actually have a whole bunch of false positives or false negatives. But the fact that they were filtering away and the presence of an obstacle as a false positive means to me that there's, uh, they were tweaking some things, making some changes. This seems like, I guess, uh, to me, uh, it is much more than a bug. To me, it's basically a design problem, if you will. So that's the first thing. There's clearly a problem in the software. Secondly, when you basically tweak these things, uh, change these functions, you ought to basically test them substantively under strict control before you actually put them uh, on the vehicles for deployment purposes, right? So, so to me, I guess there was a design problem, a testing problem, and then of course they actually have the uh, the human operator problem as well. The human operator is not paying attention. So, I think it's the combination that really uh, led to the uh, that uh, tragic accident. Okay, so that sounds like a lot of problems. Given all that, do you think that? States like Arizona that are allowing companies like Uber to test self-driving vehicles on public roads are moving too fast. Um, You have some colleagues from Carnegie Mellon who last year wrote a paper proposing that self-driving cars should be regulated sort of like the FDA uh, approval process for drugs, where you have um, simulations, which are the equivalent of preclinical trials, and then you have uh, the equivalent of clinical trials where it's a controlled environment, All and you have to pass all those stages before you can put stuff on public roads. Um, is Arizona Has Arizona moved too fast, and do regulators need to take a step back here and, and think about slowing down this process? Yeah, let me present a global perspective. Uh, well, automation is happening as we speak. Uh, there's a lot of debate about when it's supposed to happen, but when automation happens, it will uh, bring to society substantial benefits, reducing uh, fatalities, uh, injuries, uh, and such. Uh, it will uh, improve our productivity in traffic. We don't have to be driving the vehicle drives itself. And then the elderly, the blind, the physically disabled will benefit uh, quite a bit. So there's a lot of uh, social benefits, if you will. From an economic perspective, however, the market for autonomous vehicles is estimated to be about uh, $1.5 trillion with a T in about 1935. So we actually have a global competition happening uh, across multiple countries, across multiple industry sectors to uh, gain a foothold in this uh, future market, to become leaders in this space and such. So there is competition happening across countries and such. And within the U.S., uh, states are also competing among themselves to become the uh, the home uh, base, if you will, of this uh, new and uh, uh, what will be an enormous industry in the, in the future, which is why we see uh, uh, multiple states, uh, Arizona, Nevada, California, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Florida, trying to take the lead and basically saying, hey, uh, you industry uh, folks out there, come to our state. Uh, we are welcoming. We want you to come and test. And meanwhile, then once you test, you like the place, you actually start the operations here, you hire a lot of people, these are high-tech, high-paying jobs, and therefore it's good for the uh, local state economies. So that's the dynamic that's actually happening. Uh, so, But I do, because I said before, on-road testing is also essential. Uh, so I do hope that we do not end up with a mishmash of uh, 50 different regulations uh, across the 50 states. Uh, the federal government in the U.S., uh, to its credit, has been uh, recently taking the position that uh, the individual states should not be able to regulate what happens in the domain of autonomous vehicles. 
Uh, the feds will basically put in place a regulatory framework. So I think having one uniform framework across the country will help the U.S., where this technology was born and nurtured and so on, uh, continue to uh, take the leading role. And then it's really a global competition about if we don't do it, Europe will do it, Japan will do it, and China will do it, and the U.S. could end up becoming uh, the losers in this race. All right. Obviously, a very exciting technology with the potential to revolutionize the economy and give mobility to lots of people who don't have it, and also to save lives in the long run. Let's hope we don't lose too many on the way getting there. Uh, Professor Rajkumar, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciated your insight. Thank you all. All right. One last break, and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we saw on the web this week. You can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. (gasps) No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And it is time again, before we close our show, to do Don't Close My Tabs, uh, when we review kind of one of our favorite things that we read online this week. Will, let's start with, uh, with you, not me. <laughs> what, what, what did you find uh, captivating this week on the internet? All right, mine is an article from the New York Times, as it often is. The headline was, Yes, It's Bad. Robocalls and Their Scams Are Surging. And when I saw this headline... Oh, this sort of weird wave of relief washed over me because I've been getting nonstop robocalls on my cell phone, and I thought it was like just me. I thought I must have done something horribly wrong. Does that, it say like unknown? Does it say who it's from? Well, so one of the things that was interesting about this story is they've gotten really good at a tactic they call neighborhood spoofing, and that's where they actually make the call look like it's coming from your home area code. So now almost all the robocalls, I used to just ignore any call from a number I didn't recognize that was from an area code I didn't recognize. But now they all come from my home area code, and so I can't ignore them. And so I'm just, I've been totally defeated by these robocalls. The New York Times tells me I'm not alone. In fact, they said that the number of robocalls reached an estimated $3.4 billion in the month of April alone. That's an increase of almost 900 million a month compared with just a year ago. Uh, so this this practice of uh, automated spam phone calls has just exploded. Regulators are not doing much about it. Um, they talk to people in uh, state legislatures and Congress who say they hear about it from constituents all the time. But uh, it doesn't look like we're going to get relief anytime soon. 
And uh, you know, part of the issue is that it's really hard to trace exactly where a phone call is coming from. The other issue is that businesses want to be able to automatically call their customers, and so anytime there's legislation to block robocalls or to require some kind of authentication of callers, um, the businesses say, hey, wait a minute, we're going to get swept up in this, and so they push to limit the definition of what an autodial is or what a robocall is. Okay, so, you know, just briefly, I'm curious, uh, how are they getting our phone numbers in the first place? The story didn't really dive into how they get our numbers, but as I understand it, there is a sort of black market or gray market on which yeah. phone numbers are passed around and traded around uh, among people who want lists of numbers for their for their robocall software to dial. They might have got it off Facebook, right? <laughs> Before Facebook closed the door, like people had their phone numbers on there and that information could have been scraped and then put on the black market. There's so many ways that our information is taken from places that we trusted it and then, you know, shepherded it elsewhere across the internet. So who knows? Yeah, and a lot of these tactics, one of the disturbing parts is that a lot of these phone scams will target specific populations that they know are vulnerable. So recently, New York yeah. Attorney General Eric Schneiderman went after one scam that was calling people with um, with Chinese last names, claiming to be the Chinese consulate and demanding money. And this was a really successful scam. I also remember one right after Trump's immigration restrictions where um, students at, at my wife's uh, college campus, students and, and uh, postdocs who were from out of the country were getting calls claiming to uh, be threatening to deport them from the country and, and trying to exploit them that way. So I think it's important to note that uh, Attorney General Schneiderman uh, resigned yesterday following a report in The New Yorker from Rowan Farrow and Jane Mayer detailing how uh, he was abusive towards women, uh, you know, throughout the course of his career and particularly uh, during his time as, as Attorney General of New York. That's a very important story that everybody should read. Uh, so, uh, yeah, he's, he's championed so many issues, net neutrality as well, and, uh, and, and you know, he's also come out uh, around things around the Me Too movement, and, uh, and you know, it seems like he, uh, he had uh, his own skeletons in the closet that, um, you know, thankful to journalism have now been revealed. Yeah, definitely an important story. So, April, what was your tab this week? So, my tab is uh, not necessarily a tech story, but, like, technology is everywhere. Uh, it's called I'm Not Black, I'm Kanye, and it is by Tenahasi Coates in The Atlantic. It's one of the best essays I've read, uh, most extraordinary pieces of journalism I've read, kind of, I'd say, since the uh, the, the story in, in GQ about, about Dylan Roof that came out last year that I believe won a Pulitzer. Um and, uh, you know, this story uh, came out following Kanye West's uh, somewhat unforeseen, perhaps not unforeseen, but at least, um, you know, noteworthy and, and newsworthy uh, relationship to the right and to the alt-right in particular and, uh, and his uh, affinity for Donald Trump, which he, uh, you know, voiced and performed on, on Twitter and, and Trump responded thanking West uh, and, and this essay kind of addresses the, uh, the the complicated relationships that that kind of uh, got Kanye to this point and and uh, it's about race it is um, about uh, democracy it's about the the alt-right and and it's just incredibly powerful and um, I'm actually still digesting it uh, it's something that I think everybody should read and take the time to read uh, it, it's yeah one of those things that makes you kind of feel different after after reading because um, there's just so much power in the writing. 
That's great. Yeah, I haven't read it yet, but I, I, I think I will now. I have it in my Instapaper queue. I always love uh ta Coates' work. I guess the title, I'm Not Black, I'm Kanye, must be a reference to that, that uh, apocryphal O.J. Simpson line, I'm Not Black, I'm O.J., which I don't think he actually said, um, but... Uh, it's it's uh, Coates is better than just about anybody. I think about getting to like the the root of the issue when talking about race. Um, so I look forward to reading that one. Yeah, he is uh, one of the best writers on the subject of America, in my opinion, without a doubt. I really recommend people uh, read that, take the time to read it, read it twice if you want to. That does it for our show this week. Uh, you can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at ifthenpod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show or guest suggestions, or just say hi. Yes, please say hi to us. You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well, where you can also say hi to us. I'm at April Laser, and Will is at Will Arimus. And thanks so much to our guest, Professor Raj Rajkumar. And if you'd leave us a comment or a review on iTunes, we would be forever grateful. It really helps boost our show. It plays a big part in the Apple algorithm that determines whether people even have a chance to find our show. So it means a lot to us if you can take those couple minutes. Yeah, only rate us if it's a good rating and only leave a comment if it's a nice comment. <laughs> no, you can, um, if you hate no, us, no, go please ahead. Be honest. Go please ahead be honest. And tell us. Um, <laughs> if Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense uh, and a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America, our producer is Max Jacobs. You know, I think we're actually safe on that, April, because if they really hated us, would they have made it this far in the episode? I don't know. If, uh, if you hate us and you're still listening, thanks. <laughs> Thanks to Don Aulis at A Room with a VU in Santa Barbara. And thanks to Alberto Hernandez at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley. Uh, We will see y'all next week.